Mark chapter 6, verse 30 to 56. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they'd done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognised them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they'd found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognised him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment and as many as touched it, were made well. Today's part two of our message of when Jesus fed the 5,000 and when he walked on the water. Neat trick, eh, being able to do that? But it's so much more than just a neat trick. Uh, these miracles demonstrate something pretty significant about Jesus, um, about who he is and about the scope of his ability to save. Uh, last week, I began by saying that this Bible reading is one of the most significant passages in the whole of the New Testament. That's a pretty big call, um, but it was Jesus himself who drew our attention to this. 
Out of all of the miracles that Jesus did, the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000 are the two miracles that Jesus said that it should have made clear to his disciples who he was. And throughout the Gospel of Mark, the disciples seem to be just bumbling along, almost completely unaware of who this Jesus bloke really is. Jesus keeps demonstrating who he is by what he does and by what he says, but they seem to keep missing it and they're just still not getting it. And when we get to chapter 8, Jesus says to them, are your hearts still so hard? Do you not yet understand? Even after I fed the 4,000 and even after I fed the 5,000, can you still not see it? For some reason, out of all of his miracles, the feeding of the multitudes is the evidence that should have shown, given the disciples what they needed to believe about who Jesus really is. And it's all the evidence that we should need today to know who Jesus really is. And yet his disciples missed it, and many people today miss it. Their eyes are blinded to the significance of Jesus. Was Jesus a good man? Yeah, Jesus was a good man, but he wasn't just a good man. Was Jesus a healer? Yes, Jesus was a healer, but he wasn't just a healer. Was Jesus a prophet? Yes, Jesus was a prophet, but he wasn't just a prophet. Was Jesus a teacher? Yes, he was a teacher, but he wasn't just a teacher. Was Jesus a miracle worker? Yes, Jesus was a miracle worker. But what does all of this reveal about who Jesus really is? The ultimate message of the Gospel of Mark is Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This is what the feeding of the 5,000 was supposed to reveal. And it is at this point in the gospel, to be quite frank, the disciples are starting to look a little bit silly because they're still not getting it. So where were we up to? Where did we get to last week? The, the disciples have been out on a mission. They've come back from their time out on, time on mission. And Jesus says, righto, it's time to have a bit of a rest for a while. So... Hop in the boat and we'll go across somewhere where there is no body and we'll have some time out just together. Uh, but as soon as they get in the boat and start heading across the lake in the boat, uh, they recognise from the shore and, oh, look, there goes Jesus. And so this whole big bunch of mainly blokes hot-foot it around to the other side of the lake and they're there waiting for him when Team Jesus arrive. And so gone is any chance that they had of having a bit of rest. Gone is any chance that they had of having a bit of solitude. Gone is a bit of any chance that they had of just having their time out with Jesus alone. Because Jesus sees the crowd. They're, they're like a sheep without shepherd. And he teaches them. So that's where we got to last week. Now, I want you to remember that the disciples... I really want to have some time out with Jesus. He promised it to them. That's what they're after. And so they sort of say, Jesus, it's getting pretty late now. There's a lot of people out here and there's not much stuff around. Maybe we'd better send them into town where they can get a bit of fast food for themselves. Right? But Jesus said, you give them something to eat. Come on, Jesus. It would cost a fortune to feed 5,000 people. We couldn't possibly have enough food to feed this lot. Well, what do you have? Don't, don't just guess. Go and have a look and come back and tell me how much tucker we got. 
So they went and had a look and they come back. Got five loaves and two fish. And so Jesus commanded everyone to sit down on the green grass in groups or lines of hundreds and fifties. Now, to me, it seems like there was either 50 lines of 100 or 100 lines of 50 or 100 picnic groups of 50 or 50 picnic groups of 100. Regardless, seems like it was a, an organised method to not only distribute the food, but to be able to calculate how many people were actually there. 5,000 men, maybe a few women, maybe a few children, but, but the point that they're making is that 5,000 men there, a bit like a men's dinner. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven and he said a blessing and he broke the loaves and he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. Now, can you imagine how silly this is starting to look, right? Let's say that they're in 50 groups of 100. So he grabs a loaf of bread, which went not like a big loaf today, they're like smaller, more personal sized loaves of bread. And he breaks it, presumably into 10 pieces, each loaf. So they've got 50 pieces of bread. So how big a piece of bread have we got now? Probably about that size. To go to hand out to 100 people. You imagine the way people are starting to think about this. And then he divided the two fish among them all. And everybody ate until they had enough. And then they gathered up what was left and the 12 baskets full of leftovers. Isn't this amazing? It's amazing to me always how God takes what little we have and he makes it enough. If those disciples had held on to what was theirs instead of freely giving it to Jesus, well, the feeding of the 5,000 would have never happened, at least not in the way that it did. And here's a lesson for us. The mission and the ministry of God is impossibly expensive. Who could possibly afford to evangelise the world? We cannot possibly fund it. But we give what little we have and God takes care of the rest. Do you get this? We can't do everything. We, but we do give what we have. We can't fund all of God's ministry, but we give to God the finances that we do have and he takes care of the rest. We can't do everything that needs doing, but we can give to God the skills that we have and the abilities that we have and the spiritual gifts that we have. We, can't, we don't have everything that God needs, but we can give to God the equipment that we have and the resources that we have. We give to God what we do have and he takes care of everything else. And what an amazing miracle. It wasn't entirely original, you know. It had happened before. Uh, the prophet Elisha fed a hundred men with 20 loaves. Now, I want you to remember, we're talking little loaves. So that was still a miracle in itself, to feed a hundred hungry men with 20 little loaves of bread. Uh, each loaf probably should have been enough for one hungry man, but instead he fed five per loaf. So that had been done before, but even though it wasn't entirely original, Elisha's feeding of the 100 with 20 loaves well, it pretty much pales compared to Jesus feeding the 5,000 with five loaves. 
So Jesus did a miracle. Very good. Neat trick. So what? What are we really being told here? You know, usually when we just look at, uh, look at these stories like this, oh, wow, there's a miracle of Jesus. That's amazing. That's a great one to tell the kids at Sunday school so they can know God is amazing. But what are we really being told? Well, I want to share with you today three lessons. Now, I've already shared the first one. We give what we have. God takes care of the rest. Secondly, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Can anyone think of another story in the Bible where the people of Israel were out in the wilderness and they were hungry and they were miraculously given bread to eat? Can anyone think of a story like that? It's not hard. Who fed them? Come on. God. Yeah. Some of you might be thinking, oh, it was Moses. No, it wasn't Moses. He was there. But it was God who fed them. Moses had led the people of Israel out of Egypt. They were in the wilderness. They had nothing to eat and they grumbled. And God said to Moses, Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am Yahweh your God. So why did God feed the people of Israel out in the desert? Because they're hungry? Yes, because they're hungry. But even more importantly than that, so that they would know that God is God. Not just any God, the God, Yahweh God. And God sent bread from heaven. The house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Wow, isn't God good? It wasn't just boring old bread with nothing on it. I'm thinking, I'm just wondering how much I would actually enjoy bread if it wasn't for butter. I love bread and butter and all other sorts of yummy stuff on it. But, but this had the taste of a spread on it as well. Um, and then when evening came, they had meat to eat. It's important to eat meat in the evening. And there was plenty for everyone. No one was left hungry. Now, who can do something like this? Can a man do it? No. This is something that only God can do. So let's come back to the feeding of the 5,000. You know, I've heard people try to explain this miracle away. People always come up with these. They just can't accept that a miracle happened. It's like I've heard explanations like this one. You know, everybody actually had their own tucker with them, right? They, they all brought their own food. They were just hiding it under their shirts so nobody else would see. Really? I think, I think in my underwear is the last place I want to put a dead fish. And, and carry my lunch around so nobody can see it. And then they continue on and they put forward their explanation that, that when the little bit of food come out, they thought, oh, well, I guess we can do the same. And so they bring it out. They're no longer hiding it. They're not afraid that everybody's going to steal it anymore. And, and wow, look, everybody had brought more than they needed. So they all ate until they were completely full. And then they took up the 12 baskets full. They just try to explain it away. Really? Let me make this really simple. Uh, when I was going to school, I loved maths. Uh, I know that's strange in some of your eyes. Some of you get it, but I just love maths. 
So I'm going to make this really simple, and I've made a mathematical formula to explain this. Five loaves plus two fish to the power of Jesus minus the appetite of man times 5,000 equals 12 baskets of leftovers. It's that simple, right? It's as simple as that. That's exactly what happened. Now, to the mathematician, the only unknown formula there is only unknown quantity in that formula is the power of Jesus. It cannot be the power of a man because the power of a mere mortal cannot make that formula work. Five loaves plus two fish to the power of a man minus the appetite of a man times 5,000 equals about 5,000 very hungry men. Because that formula just doesn't work if that's the power of a man. But if you put the power of God in there, that formula makes perfect sense, right? So is everybody up on the maths of it, okay? You, you know that the Bible is mostly mathematical. Yeah, good. And so this miracle reveals who Jesus is. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But who is Jesus? Jesus is God. But the disciples still don't get it. Um, after he'd fed them, it then goes on like this. Immediately, he made his disciples get in the boat before him, sorry, and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. Right? It makes it sound like the disciples wanted to stay there and hang about, but Jesus says, no, you're going to leave and you're going to leave now. Get in that boat and go across over to, to Bethsaida. I'll catch up with you over there. Uh, by the way, there's a few Bethsaidas around. Um, there's a number of Bethsaidas around that lake because Bethsaida simply means fishing village. And as you might understand, around a large freshwater lake, there's probably quite a few fishing villages. But basically, Jesus makes his disciples head off. I'll finish up here. You lot head off. He sends his disciples off, and then he dismisses the, cra the crowd. Huru, they're gone. And then Jesus heads up the mountain to pray. And when evening came, Jesus is there all alone, and he looks out on the lake and his disciples, well, they haven't gotten very far because they're rowing against a strong wind. Now, I'm really feeling for the disciples at about this point. Um, I, I used to do a bit of canoeing, still got the canoe, don't do so much of it anymore. But um, when we bought this canoe, we bought it secondhand and it came with a sail. Now, Sails don't really work very well on canoes because they just tip them over. So I made an outrigger to stop it from tipping over. But out at Gundawindi, yeah, out inland on rivers, you don't really get much of a chance to use of a sail because they're only any use if, it's, if the wind is right on your rear, push it along the river, then the river takes a bend and then it's useless to you again. But we went on holidays once and we were, I thought, oh, this is going to be the perfect opportunity. And we put it on Lake Catharaba. Does anyone know Lake Catharaba, just near Noosa, just off the Noosa River? It's a shallow saltwater lake. Um, it's quite, I don't know the size, but it's big enough, quite big. Uh, but it's only, I don't know, up to about chest height at about the deepest spot. 
Anyway, we put the canoe in there and we sailed across to the other side and it was fun because the wind was on our tail. We got right over to the other side. And then we started, oh, I guess we'd better head back then. And we tried tacking, tacking from side to side to try and get back against the wind. And we went from side to side and side to side and we were getting nowhere because like a canoe doesn't have a keel. So you can't, you can't tack. And so we thought, oh, I guess we're just going to have to wrap the sail up and then we'll try and paddle. By then the wind had picked up even stronger and we were paddling from one side of the lake across to the other, direct into the wind, and we were going, and we were going, and we were going, and we were getting nowhere. And eventually we decided we'd get there quicker if we got out and waded chest deep in water dragging the canoe with us as we went and just hope the bull sharks didn't get us and um, so I'm really feeling for these disciples like they left they left Jesus presumably on sundown because it was before they let before they dismissed the people and it's in the third watch of the night sorry the fourth watch of the night that's from somewhere sometime after 3 a.m. so they have been rowing directly into the wind right through until somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. That's hard work. They would have been absolutely had it, and they've gotten hardly anywhere. And Jesus walks across the water and catches them up. Now, I think Jesus is having a bit of a, bit of a dig at them here, and it tells us there that he actually makes out that he's going to walk past them. But the disciples are terrified. They think that he's a phantom or a ghost. And Jesus says... Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. At least that's how our English translation puts it. And Jesus got into the boat, the wind ceased, and the disciples were utterly astounded. And here we find a very strange phrase, which maybe we mightn't have even thought of before. It says, they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. What, what have the loaves got to do with anything at this point? What were they supposed to understand about the loaves? What did the feeding of the 5,000 and the multiplication of the loaves reveal about Jesus? Remember the unknown factor? The power of Jesus. It's not the power of a man. It's the power of God. And now let me explain to you something more that we find here in the Greek. Um, and to do this, I'm going to have to take you back to Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, God has called Moses to lead the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And Moses, well, he's just not too keen on the idea. Well, God, I've already left Egypt and I'm sort of like a, a wanted murderer there. I don't really want to go there. I don't, and he comes up with all these excuses. And one of them is, one of these excuses was, well, God, whom shall I say is sending me? Right, if I get to these people and I say, well, well, this God, he's actually told me to come and lead you lot out of Israel. He wants to save you. The first thing they're going to want to know, well, who are you? Who is this God? And God says to him, I am. Right? That's how God identified himself. I am. Now, in the original Hebrew, it sounds a lot like 
Yahweh or Yehovah, depending on how you like to pronounce it. It's a lot like God's personal name, I am. So the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, right? But nobody in Jesus' day, well, hardly anybody, was reading Hebrew anymore. By then, the main written language was Greek. And so there was, it was only logical that the Old Testament was translated from the Hebrew to the Greek. And that happened a couple of hundred years before Jesus was born. And this Greek version of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint. And the Septuagint is pretty significant because usually whenever the Bible is quoted within the New Testament, most often it's being quoted from the Septuagint. Okay? So it's pretty significant. And in the Greek, the Greek translation here is, God tells Moses, ego I me, I am. That's how God identified himself. Ego I me, that's my name. And now Jesus walks out on the water. The disciples are terrified that he's a phantom. And Jesus says to them, take heart, ego I me. I am. Does the significance of that statement dawn on you? This is how God identified himself. Ego, I me, I am. This is how Jesus identified himself. Ego, I me, I am. Now, if anybody else had said that, that's blasphemy. Let me give you an example of how blatant this statement is. In the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus is having a bit of an argument with the religious leaders. And he says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, ego I me, I am. Now, how did those religious leaders take that? Straight away, they picked up stones to stone him. As soon as Jesus said that, they went and found rocks and they were going to mash his head with these rocks until he was dead because of what he'd said. Why did they say, why did they do that? Because Jesus was making the claim. To them, it was very clear the claim that he was making. I am God. Take heart. Ego I me. I am. Don't be afraid. I'm God. What did it mean that their hearts were hardened? Pretty simple, really. They didn't recognise that in Jesus, they had with them right there in their boat the very presence of God. Hardness of heart is the failure to recognise the divinity of Jesus. It's the failure to recognise that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, the disciples, they knew there was something special about Jesus. Uh, they really wanted to be a part of whatever it was that Jesus was doing, but their hearts at that stage couldn't see the obvious. Who is Jesus? That's what's at issue here. That's what's at issue in this passage, and that's what's at issue for us. 
Jesus is making the claim that he is the Lord. Jesus is making the claim that he is God. Is this true? As C.S. Lewis once said, and this is a paraphrase, it's not his exact words, that if Jesus claims that he is Lord, there's, there's three, three alternatives. He's either a liar or he's a lunatic or it's true. And he is indeed Lord. Who do you say he is? Have you come here today to hear about a liar? Have you come here today because you've been getting taken for a ride by a lunatic in his crazy fantasies? Or are you here because you're following the Lord? Today's reading finishes with the Jesus team arriving at Gennesaret. And once again, Jesus is recognised. And wherever Jesus goes, all the sick people are brought to him in the hope that, that they might just be able to reach out and touch the fringe of his garment. And everybody who managed to do that was made well. Now, what's going on? They wanted to experience Jesus the teacher. Some people wanting to experience Jesus the nice man. Here we're getting an account of those who are wanting to experience Jesus as the healer. But hardened hearts haven't yet accepted the fact that Jesus is the Lord. Now this, my friends, is the great conversion conundrum. Today, many people are looking for answers for their life. We might say they're looking for some kind of life improvement. And so many people are willing to give this Jesus thing a bit of a go because, well, maybe Jesus can improve my life a bit. But who is Jesus? Is Jesus just a life improver to us? Is Jesus merely a mechanism to give us some kind of meaning in life? Is he merely some kind of miracle worker to give me some kind of healing that I might want? Is Jesus merely a means of fixing the relationship that's broken down that I really want fixed? A lot of people come to the conclusion that they don't need Jesus because they're not at the end of their tether and their life isn't falling apart and in their eyes their life isn't so bad and so they don't need Jesus. Because their view of Jesus is he's there for a life improver for those who need him. You see, the thing is, we humans, we tend to gravitate towards making things all about us. It's like Jesus has come and this is all about me. It's not all about us. This is all about Jesus. Let's never think of Jesus in such shallow terms. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is the Lord God Almighty. Jesus is the Saviour of the world. Let's not come to Jesus for what we think we can get out of him. We bow before Jesus because we are weak and he is strong. He is the creator. We're just the creation. He is Lord. He is our God. Jesus owes us nothing, and we owe him everything. 
and yet he died for us. Jesus owed us nothing. We owed him everything, and yet he died for us, not us for him. And so we come to the third lesson. Jesus took the bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it. When else did Jesus do that? We're going to do it down the back shortly. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. There on the side of the lake... When Jesus blessed the bread and broke it, he didn't tell them this at, at that stage. But we can now see that the feeding of the 5,000 was a symbol of Jesus' body being broken, not just to save a few, but to save multitudes. And when we realise this, it, it becomes a picture of the extent of the availability of God's grace. Now, you might be sitting here today or you might be listening to the recording on the audio or the video and you might be feeling, my sins are so bad. I have messed up so much and God's grace isn't enough for me. It might be enough for those people who aren't so bad, but not for me. I could never be forgiven. I've, I'm too far gone. There's no hope left. Well, you need to hear that the broken body of Jesus is more than enough. It's more than enough for the multitudes. Everyone who repents of their sin and asks for forgiveness and gives themselves to Jesus because Jesus is Lord, every one of these will be saved. Not a one will not. God has so much love. God has so much forgiveness that everyone who comes to him will be saved and there's leftovers. I'm reminded of the story of, of, of the man who's, the king who's calling the banquet and he sends out the invitations, invites all these people to come and everybody has excuses. No, I'm not coming. I'm not coming. I'm not coming. He says, well, blow it. My house will be full. Send them out into the, these other areas and go and get some more. And they go out with the invitation and they come back. He says, look, there's still room. Go out again and bring in some more. That's, that's how big God's capacity is to save. It's just limitless, limitless. God has so much love and so much forgiveness that everyone who comes to him will be saved. And there's leftovers still. So, when you've brought all your friends to Jesus, don't give up. There's leftovers still. Go and invite the people from your street. And when your street's finished, start on the next street. And when this town's finished, start on the next town. Because 
Jesus' capacity to save is limitless. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us for our hardness of heart. Forgive us for failing to recognise the significance that you are ego I me, I am. Lord, forgive us for the way that we so often set our hearts on our physical blessings that you might happen to give us now instead of us bowing our knee before you for you are the Lord. Lord, we thank you that you gave yourself for us on the cross. The highest of heaven became the, the lowliest peasant on the cross. But you are Lord. You have the name that is above every other name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, we thank you that you haven't hidden this from us. And we thank you that your grace and your mercy is in abundance. Lord, we give ourselves to you because you are God. You deserve our loyalty. You deserve our praises. You deserve our obedience. And you deserve our worship. And we give this to you. And we thank you, Lord, for the way that your grace is so enormous, that the blood of Jesus is so powerful that none of us cannot be saved. And we thank you for the grace that you've shown us and that you will continue to demonstrate to us as we walk with you in Jesus' name. Amen.